growing up, you could say, you could say it a very vivid mind. My dad, my dad would take me to a lot of movies. I think he regrets it now, but he took me to movies all the time. And I would watch some pretty bad movies. When I'd get home, I would go to bed and I'd have nightmares because my mind was very vivid. And he took me to this one movie in the late 80s or mid 80s, 85 in particular. And I went to bed and I had the worst, one of the worst nightmares of my life. I'm going to tell you my nightmare and I want you to see if you can think of what movie I'm talking about. Very important movie. I went to bed and all of a sudden I dreamt that I was in a North Vietnamese POW camp. I was behind Bamboo, Bamboo Prison and I lost like 50 pounds. And they pulled me out of that prison. They brought me to this pit. And they were getting ready to lower me into this pit. It had like a piece of wood, and they tied me up to this pit. And the pit was full of mud and leeches and maggots. And they wanted, they said, if you don't tell me where your base camp is, we're going to lower you in there, then pull you out and shoot you. I mean, it was a vivid dream. And right before they were getting ready to lower me down into the mud, out of the sky came a helicopter. And the helicopter landed right by the mud pit. And a guy jumped out with a machine gun and artillery around his wrist. Who was it? Rambo. John J. Rambo. And to this day, I love Rambo. He saved my life in that dream. He saved my life. But in the same way that Rambo came out of the sky to save me, that's exactly what Christmas is. God out of heaven sent his son in flesh to a town on a specific day in order to touch the ground so he could save me and save you. And in fact, that is the whole point of Christmas. He came to save. This is going to be a very simple message. But it's a message we, I, I just don't think we hear anymore. And it's a message I think you need. And I'm going to make it very clear. I'm not going to go too deep. But I want you to know he came for you, to rescue you, to save you. If you could open up to a book um, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is the history and the record of the Israelites as they're getting ready for their king. The title of our message <coughs> is, Where Was Jesus Born? And we're going to look in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. The first week, Christmas, we talked about why did Jesus come. And we just had the Lord's table, and we talked about how he needed to have a human body to pay for our sins. We're going to talk a little bit more about that today. Last week, we talked about when did he come? And we said he came at the fullness of time. That means all of history, thousands and thousands of years of history, Old Testament prophecy, were for one day so that when he came, it would have the biggest effect in the world in the fullness of time. Today we're going to talk about where was he born. Very simple. And the idea is he came to a place, and since he came to a place, it's a historical reality, and he came for you. He came for you. And we find it in Micah 5.2. And this is what we're going to look at. 
So God is writing, and he says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, and that's in the southern part of Judea, right underneath Jerusalem. It's a real city, small, teeny little city. I was there with my wife about five years ago. Actually, it's occupied by the Palestinians. It's kind of a dangerous place these days. But it's a real city. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, from you, which means from Bethlehem, shall come forth for me. So God is saying somebody that represents or that I'm sending is going to come from Bethlehem. He's to be the ruler in Israel. He's to be the king, the Messiah, the promised one, the one who's come to rescue us in the same way Rambo came to rescue me out of the mud. Jesus came to rescue me out of sin. It's called salvation. Ruler of Israel whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. That's another way to say from eternity. Before time began, Jesus dwelled with the Father and the Holy Spirit in perfect unity and love. They made up a plan before they created the world that Jesus would come to rescue us from ancient times. And so from heaven, he came to put on a body so he could enter time and touch on the same earth for a purpose, to be the king. Some of the questions, did he actually come in Christ? And if he did, wouldn't he come to a specific location? Yes. Okay, so if he came to that specific location, it's... It's something you can't ignore. The coordinates are right here in Micah 5.2. Did it come true? Well, turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 2. This is 700 years later. Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 8. It says this in Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, by the way, verse 1, it says, now, after Jesus, the word Jesus means God saves. That's what it means. Rescues, delivers. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the times of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king, ruler of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Stop there for a second. Verse 4 says, assembling chief priests and scribes, those are experts of the Old Testament. So they scour the Old Testament promises, prophecies, commandments to try to figure out when God's arrival is going to come. And they knew the answer. We read it. Look at verse 5. They told him. So they told Herod, well, he's going to show up in Bethlehem. They knew. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And that's what they were quoting. So that was written about 700 B.C. This story is 0 A.D., so that's 700 years. And they knew exactly what city he's going to show up in. He's going to parachute down out of eternity. Verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you 
shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So he believed it, and look at verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem. He went to a specific location to look for the king. Because he was king and he didn't want his throne usurped, and he knew these guys weren't messing around. So you could say they knew what city he was to come. They, weren't, they were not believing in some mystical reality, some vague, I believe in God statement. A lot of people say that. I believe in God. But do you believe in a man who came to Bethlehem? I want you to go to the book of 1 John. 1 John is towards the very end of the Bible, right before Revelation. In 1 John chapter 4, 1 through 3. This is one of those verses that it's, it just sounds too simple. But it is so profound in its simplicity. 1 John chapter 4, 1 through 3. John is writing those he loves. So he begins by saying, Beloved. He's saying, I love you. Beloved. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So here's what he's saying. There will be a lot of people that are going out into the world who say, I know God. And they're going to have all these fancy theories. A lot of them will talk very spiritual. I, I know God. A lot of them will be very mystical. They'll act like they are higher and more holy than you. And Paul says there's going to be a lot of them. I mean, John says a lot of them will be sent out in the world. Then he gives warning. Verse 2, he says, by this you know the Spirit of God. So here's how you know if somebody really believes in a real God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Here's what he's saying. Do you want to know how somebody really believes in God? They believe that in the person of Jesus, who is an actual baby in flesh, <coughs> arrived, they are true believers in God. There's a lot of people that don't believe that. There's a lot of people that get kind of upset by that. They don't want to talk about Jesus. I was reading this article earlier this week. It was from a Bible expert. He had to give a message at a conference that included Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, atheists, all these world religions, they wanted to gather together for a conference for peace. And he got up here and he said this. He said, how it stands today in our world, the battle really is around who is the king and who is the Lord of lords. And then he said, once he said that, the entire group reeled, meaning they all were shocked because... All is well when God is the topic of conversation. However, in a gathering of Buddhists, Hindus, Catholics, and Muslims, when you mention the name Jesus, divisive stirrings and rumblings start going through the crowd. He's saying it's okay to say you believe in God. You sound kind of actually uh, impressive if you believe in God, but you say you believe in Jesus? Ooh. That's when things start getting hairy. That's when division starts entering in. He continues by writing this. In today's world, division is the enemy of all that is good. 
all that is peaceable and tolerable. We want to be united as a people and to see that unity born out of intercultural care, communion, communication, and consideration is so important, so we resist division. We know that division breeds horrors and government, faith systems, and families. Tolerance, however, says you're okay and I'm okay. We're just different. You can believe what you want. I can believe what I want. And we just be okay with those differences. And then he says this, but what if, what if someone is actually wrong? What if someone or an ideology is actually harmful? What if I'm okay, you're okay, can actually and does bear blood, tears, hatred, even though there may be peaceful dialogue, it might end up in actual warfare. What if there is actually one way in the world? And then he ends by saying, what if there is one right way for li living human beings to live? One faith system that is the truth. What if? And here's what I'm to say. Because a baby was born in Bethlehem, one single person was born on one single day in one single town, there is only one way. It's called the scandal of particularity. And I want you to think through this because I'm just telling you. We as Christians give up the ground so easy now, it's just like we just want peace at any cost, but what we are actually doing, getting peace at any cost, is we are keeping the answer away from people. It's called the scandal of particularity. Particularity means there's a very specific answer, solution, and there's only one. And it's scandalous because people will get mad at you. And what people will often say is they will accuse Christians of being, they are, they are just intolerant. They need to be more inclusive. But my argument is going to be by presenting Christ as a solution, we are being inclusive. And when you mock Christ, you're being intolerant. Let me put it to you like this. I'm going to show you a picture of a guy that you probably have never heard of. You probably don't know his name. But this guy, this single guy that I'm going to talk to about, has touched every single one of you. And, and you, are, you will be so grateful for this guy. This guy's name is Alexander Fleming. Alexander Fleming lived in London, and in 1928, on September 3rd, he came home from vacation. Before he went on vacation, he took two vials and put a bacteria in both of these vials, Petri dishes, two little round Petri dishes. He's a microbiologist. One of those Petri dishes, uh, dishes he, they don't know, but a mold got in there. And a mold started growing. And on the, in both of the Petri dishes, the bacteria that he put in there also started growing, but in the one with the mold, where the mold touched the bacteria, it killed it and stopped it. It wasn't growing anymore. But in the other dish, the bacteria was just alive and thriving. But in the one with the mold, it was dying. That mold is called penicillin. September 3rd, 1928, because he discovered penicillin in St. Mary's Hospital in London, he has created antibiotics that save you from unbelievable infection. He cured millions of lives, saved millions of lives in World War II because of that one day 
that one day is his discovery intolerant to all other medical remedies for bacteria. So for instance, there's people at that day and age right before that believed that bloodletting was a great way to cure somebody who was sick. So what they do is they would drain blood because they thought blood had poison in it. That's how George Washington actually died. They'd bloodlet him. Or how about leeches? He is disparaging the use of leeches. By, by introducing penicillin, you know, all of, those, all of those people that used to recommend leeches to suck out blood, they are seen as fools and quacks. And so as I say this to you today, if I talk about bloodletting, or if I talk about leeches, or if I talk about mustard plasters, if I talk about all of these ancient ways to try to heal bacteria in the body, you now know that is so stupid because you live after 1928. You know that antibiotics work. So when I talk about bloodletting, you're probably like, that's so dumb. It is. It's stupid. And we're allowed to say that. But it's really funny. If I say, did you know Jesus is the only way to cure sin? People are like, oh, how intolerant. It's actually just the opposite. Because there was penicillin, the whole world now can be healed from bacteria. There's this idea, if I tell people that Jesus is the only way, what I'm saying is I am barring the doors to heaven from all these other religions. No, what I'm saying before Jesus came they already were barred from heaven. Everybody was. And until he came, the door was not open. But because he came on a specific day, at a specific city called Bethlehem, he opened the door for everybody to come in. That's called tolerance. That is called wide open inclusivity. Let me show you what I mean. So what is mankind's problem? We all have a problem. And Galatians 3.22 is very clear about this. And it says this, Galatians 3.22. Scripture declares, that means the whole of the Old Testament up to the New Testament declares one of the main messages is that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. They're kind of getting, it's like, it's like John, before John Rambo came. Desperation. Here's what's really hard about being a preacher. There's a song that says, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. As if, if I could just tell you how great Jesus is, oh, I'd give anything to have a thousand tongues to tell you that. I would give, I would give almost anything to try to explain to people how terrible sin is. We don't believe it anymore. We don't believe sin is destroying us. If I cut your arm and you got bacteria in your wound that start getting infected and you start feeling it, you know, man, I need, I need some kind of antibiotic. But we don't know what sin does to us. Actually, one of sin's, one of sin's um, problems is it tells us we're okay when we're doing wicked things. It tells us God's okay with you. He's, he's kind of a nice old grandpa who never sees your sin. You can get away with it. He doesn't know what you're doing behind closed doors. What happens in Vegas? He doesn't know. He's dumb. God's blind. He doesn't know. As if sin is not a problem. 
in the whole scripture saying sin is what is destroying us. It's morphing us into monsters. It's why we hate. It's why we lust. It's why we are so critical. It's why we have warfare. It's sin. The whole world is a prisoner to it. Why are you depressed? Why do you have despair? Because of sin. And so what happened is Jesus came to the world and it was it's particular. It was for a specific moment in time that was never to be repeated again. It's very clear. Person's name's Jesus, and he's the son of Joseph. He's of the right lineage, but his name means God saves. Means God saves. I'm not sure exactly what the date is. There's a lot of dispute of was it December 25th? Some people say it's a traditional date. Some people say it's the pagan date. I don't know, but I know that he did come because history is very clear. One of the reasons we probably don't know is because he was a peasant. He was born in a manger. He was born in a cow trough. He was born, as one writer said, to the lowliest people so he can go to the very bottom to save all of us up. Thank God for that, because I'm down there. He's born in Bethlehem. It's the city of David. That's David's hometown. Bethlehem means house of bread. That's what it means. He is the bread of Life that gives life to all those who believe in him. And this baby that was born is God. God came to rescue us because he alone can do it. No other man can do it because of sin. God is sinless. He came to rescue us. It's called the particularity of Christmas. Nobody else can do it. It's very simple. This is the rescue plan. This is the cure. This is the vaccine for sin. And his vaccine's 100% proof. Doesn't lose strength. I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 2. I, I love this passage. But it really gives you more insight on why he had to do it. It's Hebrews chapter 2. In verses 14 to 17. So Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... So we are the children of God because he made us in his image. It says in Psalm 2, we are his inheritance. It says in the book of Deuteronomy, we're the apple of his eye. We're the children. And we share in flesh and blood. That's what we're made of. We are made of flesh and blood. He himself, likewise, partook of the same things. He himself, that means God, specifically Jesus, because that's what this whole book about is about, Hebrews. So you could say Jesus likewise partook. That means participated in the same things. What are the same things? Flesh and blood. That through death, 
he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That means through his death, so this little baby grew up at the age of 33, he died on a cross. That death destroyed death. That death happened to a perfect person who was my substitute. He took my place because I was imperfect. He paid my penalty. Death destroyed death. That's what that's about. And then it says, um, also he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The devil uses, he uses the fear of death over you. So deep down inside of us, when we sin, we know we're guilty. We can hide it. We can try to ignore it. But if you don't have an answer for your sin, you know you know when you die, you're not sure you're going to make it in. And there's this fear of condemnation. I had it. I had it. When I was the age, about 23, I, I, I was making decisions that I knew were offensive to a holy God. I knew it. And I wondered, if I die, where do I go? And I didn't know. Like, I really didn't know. And the devil uses that guilt and that unknowing to condemn you and put you in chains. You're so unworthy of heaven. How could God love you? I know what you do. And you hear those voices either late at night or early morning or you look in the mirror in the bathroom you're like, I know who I am. How could God love me? That's what that is. That's the fear of death. And that power is given to the devil because the devil's name means the accuser. He wants to accuse you. Then it says, verse 15, he wants to deliver all those who through fear of death were subjects to lifelong slavery. Slavery to guilt, to condemnation. And then here's where it gets interesting, verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He's not helping angels. You'd think he would because angels are amazing beings. One angel can kill 160,000 men. Like they are, like they are celestial machines, man. What are we compared to angels? But yet he wants to save us, the offspring of Abraham. That means those who believe in him by faith. Therefore, to rescue us, verse 17 says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. That word propitiation is so cool. It means that when Jesus shed his blood, he presented it to God on our behalf. It's a payment of our guilt. God looked at, the, at Jesus' blood and said, I'm satisfied. satisfied. No more guilt. But one of my favorite things is what it says in verse 17. Like it just hit me. It says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He likes that term, brother. Let me just give you an illustration why this hit me. And hopefully this will make sense about salvation. When I was, I think I was 
in ninth grade, my sister Stephanie was in ninth grade with me, with the same grade. We went to go visit my sister Tammy at an RV park. In camp, they had an RV at a camp park in western Ohio. And it's one of those RV parks that are, how do I say it, weird people go to, you know, like people that are, their whole bodies are full of tattoos. You know, have you ever been to one of those camping parks? You know what I'm talking about. You've been to some of the Michigan camping parks. You know where people stay up all late, they have bonfire and they drink like crazy and they don't go to bed until 3 in the morning. My sister had her RV at one of those parks. And they had a watering hole in the middle where it had this 15-foot diving board. And all of these kind of like 24, 25-year-old guys that were drunk would always be doing flips and stuff off the diving board. I think they're trying to impress their tattooed girlfriends. And I'm not saying anything about tattoos. It's just the truth. That's kind of who is there. You feel like, I feel bad that I'm saying tattoos in a bad derogatory way. I, it's not derogatory, it's just true. And so all these guys are doing flips and twists and cannonballs, and they're cool, like cool, because they're drunk, so they're cool. <laughs> oh, man, you see that? <laughs> you know, that kind of laughter. And then my sister and I went up there. We just wanted to dive, and they're like, you get off the diving board. That's for the older kids, man. You can't do what we can do. You know, one of those things, and they're trying to show off. My brother Don gets out of the, my sister's RV. Now, let me tell you a little bit about my brother Don. My brother Don, six foot two. My brother Don looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger. My brother Don was an Acapulco cliff diver. My brother Don was a high diver at the World's Fair where you dive off 104 feet with a cape on fire. My brother Don is like an incredible diver. So, my brother Don hears these guys making fun of my sister and I. Oh, get off the board. You get off. That's for the older, cooler kids. My brother goes to the diving board. He's in jeans and has like a polo, but he takes off his polo shirt. He looks like Schwarzenegger. He's going up the ladder. It's 15 feet. Goes to the end of the springboard, kind of bounces on it a couple times, and he's, he can go really high because he's a good diver. Goes to the end of the board and gets, starts, takes his presentation, does one bounce, goes up, does a triple, triple flip, one twist, goes in the water, whoosh, no splash. And these guys are like, dude, did you see that? Man, that was amazing. Who is that guy? My sister and I go, that's my brother, man. That's my brother. That's my brother. You know that baby in the manger? That's my brother. He came to die for me. Nobody else went to the cross and died for me. Nobody else could do it. He did it for me. He's my brother. I think sometimes we get so like embarrassed that we believe in Jesus. Don't be embarrassed you believe in Jesus. He is your brother. He's the only one that died for you. Took all of your sins paid him at the cross, goes before the father. The father looks at his son and says, I'm satisfied. So when I believe in Jesus, I go to God, and he looks at me and goes, Jesus paid for you, Chris. Come on in, man. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Because that little baby is my brother, and he's incredible. There's nobody like him. There's nobody like him. It's called the scandal of particularity. There's nobody like him. 
And don't give that up. Don't be embarrassed. And why don't you live for him? He's the king of all kings. I want to show you one more verse. It's in the book of Acts, chapter 4. When I read this verse, tell me, is, is there any way around this verse? Is there any wiggle room to this verse? Here's what it says, Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. And there is salvation, that means being saved, rescued from sin, from condemnation. And there is salvation in no one else, in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Who else? What, what else you got? Oh, you got Allah? Allah and Muhammad, that's what you got? They didn't die for me. In fact, you know Muhammad's still dead? How dare you talk about... Why? He didn't die for me. My brother died for me. His name's Jesus. Well, what about Hindus? Hindus worship... Do you know they worship false things, like weird things, like, like elephants with eight arms? Do you know that? I'm talking about a guy who came to Bethlehem, a real city, in real flesh and blood. I'm not talking about some made-up spiritual thing because I can act all holy. I'm tired of acting. I'm tired of acting. Well, what about Buddhists? Do you know Buddhists, Buddhists really don't believe in anything? They don't believe God exists. They just believe in this weird cycle that some guy made up. There is no guy who came to Bethlehem. This, this guy who came to Bethlehem did die for my sins. You know he was buried in the ground for three days, and he rose again, and when he rose again, he was walking on the earth again, and people saw him, more than 500 people. It's not an illusion. I'm not trying to tell you fairy tales. He died for you. Do you believe it? And if you don't believe it, here's just my question, and I'm very serious. If you don't believe it, what is your answer for sin? What is your answer for this messed up world? Like this world's messed up, you know that? Try to be a pastor the last two years. You know how many funerals I've done? Something's wrong. What's your answer? And I'm tired of all of this Silly big words. But if you have Jesus, I have hope that I'm going to see everybody I love again who believes in Jesus, and I'm going to see him because he guaranteed it. I'm the resurrection of life. If any man believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. Wow. That's the best Christmas present ever.